in recent history, New Testament scholar and author T.W. Mason, Manson, excuse me, wrote, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expressed forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it's simply incredible. William Barclay, another New Testament scholar, earlier 20th century wrote, agreeing with Manson's proposal, this story does not seem worthy of Jesus. There seems to be a rather weakness in it. What do we say to such objections to Jesus' miracles, to the stories that we hear and read about in God's Word, like the one we're going to hear this morning about Jesus cursing a fig tree? Do we conclude, like Manson and Barclay, two German liberal scholars from the early 20th century, um, that these miracles were really rather a waste of Jesus' time? Was Jesus acting more like a spoiled child than a savior he promised to be? That's what we're going to consider this morning in Mark's gospel. What does it mean that Jesus cursed a fig tree and cleansed a temple? What do these things mean and well, how do they apply to our lives together as God's people? I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 12. Mark chapter 11 in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Last week we considered in Mark's gospel the triumphal entry. We considered Jesus coming as a king. He rode that. That, that little donkey, that, that colt of a donkey, an unwritten colt, one that was had never been sat before. Jesus comes in and people were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And we closed last week by looking at Jesus there standing in the temple. That sort of ominous view in verse 11. Look at verse 11. And, he, and Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Mark tells us that Jesus goes in and kind of sizes up the temple. He, he looks at it, he's like, hey, what's going on? And he kind of checks out and sees it. And what we have in this narrative that we see today is sort of that next day, the day after. As Jesus, the Son of God, returns to the temple. 
not to just passively sit back and quietly watch as he did the day before, but to go as the messianic king and to declare his authority in that place. For he was the king, and that was his temple. And he would cleanse it for God's glory. If you look at Mark's gospel here for a moment, just look at your Bibles. just want to notice something. Mark loves sandwiches. I don't even think that's weird. What do you mean he loves sandwiches? Like, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? No, not that quite kind of sandwiches. But very similar to sandwiches. When you, uh, a writer will often uh, sandwich, what that means is, is kind of put in the middle of two things or two similar ideas, something in the middle. And the reason is, is because, well, he wants you to think really hard and really closely about what's in the middle, right? Just like you and I, when we eat a sandwich, right? The bread's good. We like good bread. But man, it's what's in the middle that matters, right? What matters is what's in the middle. Well, if you look at your Bibles, just look down at your Bibles, you'll see in verses 12 through 14, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And then in verses 15 through 19, Jesus cleanses the temple. And then if you look at the following story, this is the story we're going to, the narrative that we're going to consider next week. When Jesus left the temple that day, or excuse me, the next day, when they came back to the temple in, in verse 20, uh, we see the lesson of the fig tree. So we have fig tree, temple cleansing, fig tree. All right. And so what Mark wants us to do is kind of hone in a little bit on what's in the middle, the meat in the middle of the story, and to kind of think about it and then see what's in the middle in light of, you know, and, and take what's on the outside in light of what's in the middle. All right, say that again. So what's on the outside, the bread, needs to be informed by what's in the middle. Okay? So what Jesus is doing in the middle is really going to help us interpret what's happening at the beginning and at the end. Okay? So hopefully that, uh, I'm not going to spend time to do that, but Mark does that elsewhere. We've already considered that. I've made note of those uh, in other parts of his gospel where he does the same thing. He, he loves sandwiches. For example, uh, he began in chapter 8, or he ended chapter 8 with a healing of a blind man and closed chapter 10 with a healing of a blind man, right? He, Mark loves sandwiches, all right? And so just a little... Uh, thing to see there as we think about the context and what is going on. One of the things we saw last week is, is the pilgrims are coming into the city. Uh, that is, the, the, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was an annual time in the life of Israel where they would go and sacrifice, where they would go and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Um, and so at Easter time, we often talk about the, the Passover, we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, we talk about, and all of this is from Israel's time in Egypt, when, they, when God delivered them from there, he told them, don't put any leaven in the bread, you know, that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then, um, then celebrate the Passover lamb, which is sort of a picture of something dying in the place of something else, uh, the atonement. And so what these, what these Jews are doing is they're, they're coming, and thousands of them are coming. Now, one of the things we want to take note as we kind of consider the context of what's going on is, you know, they didn't have cars. Okay, I know that's, I know, I know it's shocking, right? I know as you consider, uh, they actually walked places uh, when they went. So these folks have been traveling. Jesus himself and his disciples have been traveling for about nine months to get to Jerusalem. 
Now, not because it took nine months, but because they were doing some other things and, and kind of got off. But, but most Jews, it would have taken them maybe a month or so of travel to get there. Can, now, just imagine what you had to take with you in order to do it. You had to have your provisions and stuff like that. Well, for many Jews, they, di- they didn't have um, you know, the provisions to take with them. They would buy along their way. So, for example, if maybe you're like this, you go on vacation, you just kind of say, you know, if I'm missing anything, I'll buy it when I get there, right? Instead of packing your car full of stuff, you just say, hey, when I get there, I'll buy it, right? They have Walmarts, right? There, we'll buy it when we get there. Um, and so uh, the Jews were kind of like that. What they were doing is they would wait to get to the temple. Uh, just imagine, for example, if you were a poor Jew, one of the, sac- the one sacrifice that you would have to make uh, there during this, this Passover time was the sacrifice of a dove. Uh, that's what a poor Jew would have, would have sacrificed uh, as his free will sacrifice would have been. Now I want you to think for a moment what it would have been like to travel with a dove for a month, right? Or more, right? It would have been cumbersome. It would have been difficult. And so the Jews created a system to kind of help other Jews out. And that was, hey, Instead of folks bringing doves with you, or as the ESV translates, pigeons, uh, instead of bringing them with you, we'll just have them here and you can buy them when you get here. Okay? Seems simple enough. What the problem was is what they were doing uh, in selling those doves. And we're going to consider that in a moment. The other activity that these Jews were were doing uh, in coming to Jerusalem was paying the temple tax. They were paying a tax. They had, uh, in the nation of Israel, we often, un, uh, I'm sort of silly, and, and we don't really, we, I don't think we do it intentionally, but we often talk about tithing, right? And we get that principle from the Old Testament. Well, uh, tithing was only like a small part of what they actually had to pay, you know, 10%. They actually had a tax. They were taxed like 40%. Do you think it's bad living in America, right? Uh, right? 40%. And the reason was is because someone had to pay for the king, right? Someone had to pay for the for the temple. Someone had to pay for the priests. Someone had to pay to, for all these things. Just like you and I pay taxes so that we can have a military and we can have all the, the benefits of living in a country, well, so was the nation of Israel. And so there was a temple tax, and that's something else that was going on sort of in the background. So, But, but as we kind of consider, what, what does this mean? What does it really mean that Jesus here is doing cursing this fig tree and going crazy in the temple? Well, well what's, what does this all mean? Well, here's sort of a proposition for us to consider um, as sort of the point of this passage. Jesus here is acting with messianic authority, judging the nation of Israel for its spiritual unfruitfulness. He does this so that you would be convinced of your responsibility to bear fruit in your life. Jesus here in exercising his messianic authority by judging the nation of Israel. This is what Jesus is doing. We want to see clearly the main thrust of this passage is to display Jesus' authority as a judge. But not just as any judge, as the judge, capital T, the one and only judge of the Bible. And Jesus comes and he shows up and declares by his actions who he is. If you will, his actions spoke louder than his words. He had already told them as much, but now he shows them that he has authority to judge on earth and in heaven. 
And all of this then points for our own benefit to convince us of our responsibility to bear fruit in our lives. A warning, if you will, for our own souls that if we do not bear fruit like that fig tree or like that barren temple, that we too will meet the same fate that that fig tree met and the temple met. But God is just in his judgment. As we read in Isaiah that seek the Lord when he can be found. Implying that there is a time when God will not be found. There's a time coming when God will not be Savior. But will be judged. Will be judged. This is what we call the second coming of Christ. When Christ comes not as a Savior. But as a warrior king. Coming to defeat those who have willingly rebelled against God. So we're going to consider two points this morning. So if you take notes, there's just two points. Uh, Really just two main points I want us to see. First, I want to see Jesus' authority. I want you to see from from this text, Jesus' authority. And then secondly, I want us to consider in way of application um, how we have a responsibility to bear fruit and and really what that looks like in our lives. How we can tease out some, some application for our own souls this morning. So let's consider first Jesus' authority to judge and to cleanse. Let's look at the, the, first the cursing of the fig tree. Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples are traveling and that Jesus is hungry. A little side note, a little picture of Jesus' humanity, isn't it? That Jesus was hungry. Just like you get hungry, Jesus was hungry. He was a man just like you and I. He had weaknesses just like you and I. When you punched him, it hurt. Um, and we want to remember that as we consider who Jesus is. We're told that Jesus, because he's hungry, sees out in a distance a fig tree. And this would be quite natural. Figs, trees were all over the area. Uh, This isn't sort of a a lone ranger fig tree, but, but in that context we see Jesus sort of focusing on this one fig tree on their route from Bethany back to Jerusalem. There's this fig tree. And, uh, and Jesus goes to this fig tree and he looks and he sees that it has leaves. Now as we look and consider really what is going on here, what, why is Jesus so getting so mad at this tree? I mean, uh, clearly, what, why is he getting mad at a tree? Well, what Jesus is doing here is not just merely cursing a fig tree just to curse a fig tree, right? As if kind of the way Manson concluded Jesus' story here, that Jesus was just sort of, you know, spitefully doing it. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is illustrating what is about to happen in the temple. Jesus is showing his disciples a, a picture of what he is about to do to the nation of Israel. What God is about to do to the nation of Israel is represented in this fig tree. It's represented in what Jesus does to this fig tree. So let's just notice what happens. Uh, Verse 13. Jesus seeing that in a distance of fig tree, he goes to it and he couldn't find anything on it. Uh, He sees that it has leaves, but he doesn't see any fruit. Now we want to conclude, like, what's going on here? I mean, Mark tells us that it wasn't even the season for figs. And we kind of want to get upset with Jesus a little bit and be like, hey, what's the deal? Right? It's not the season. Clearly, Jesus, you're wrong. You're wrong, Jesus. This This is completely crazy. But what we need to understand is what Jesus means by by his looking here is evidence that fruit is coming. So when when there's leaves on a tree, uh, 
there comes with it the, the evidence that there's going to be a, a fruit that's going to come from that. It, now, it may not be big. It may be very tiny. It may be, you know, very small. But one of the things we're going to see is that a fig tree in leaf has some evidence that there's going to be fruit from it. There's going to be some evidence. And that's, that's really what we want to think about here. Jesus is looking and saying, look, I'm looking for fruit and I see no evidence of it. What did he find? He found a tree that looked healthy. He found a tree that looked green. It looked pretty. It, it looked like it could bear fruit. But, but upon closer inspection, what Jesus rather found was fruitlessness. Jesus found a tree that, that had all of the appearance of fruit. Looked good, but it lacked fruit. This is the nation of Israel. It looked really good. There's a lot of activity. A hustle and bustle. They were throwing around God's name after all. They were using his name. But as we considered last week, they were using God. And as we'll see in the temple cleansing... They were merely users. They were using God for their own spiritual benefits and for their own financial benefits as well. What we see in the fig tree is that Jesus cursing the fig tree is his curse of Israel. In the Old Testament, we we don't have time to spend, but we can look at several passages in the Old Testament where fig trees were represented or symbolic of the nation of Israel. Fig trees were regularly used by, by, by Old Testament writers to symbolize the nation of Israel, and particularly the fruitfulness of a fig tree. Fig trees were important to the economy and to the sustaining of life there in Israel. And so fig trees died. It was sort of a, a picture of death of a nation. And so what we see Jesus doing again is actually cursing these fig tree as a Symbol of his curse on the nation of Israel. And that's what we see in the temple cleansing. So what we see in the illustration here at the beginning is then lived out in the cleansing. So what does the Bible say? Does Jesus have authority? Consider what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his appearing and his kingdom. Jesus is a judge, and we want to sort of just see his power demonstrated as a judge in the cursing of this fig tree. We want to see his creative and destructive power, that the creator spoke and the creation listened. We see also then in the temple cleansing, Jesus' authority displayed through his actions there, that Jesus is authoritative. As we consider in verse 15, Jesus coming to Jerusalem into this temple. This wasn't just a casual experience. This wasn't just some quiet time. This was the center of the nation of Israel. The epicenter of the Passover season. This was was the, the height. This is, if you will, going to the mall on Christmas Eve, right? Uh, It was crazy, noisy. Smelly, lots of things going on. People trading, people buying, people selling, people coming, people going. Noisy animals running all over the place. Getting ready, people bringing their livestock with them to sacrifice there that week. 
it was the hustle and bustle of town. And in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the, of the craziness, Jesus comes in and starts cleaning shop. We're told first that Jesus goes in and what? Look at verse 15. He began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Remember what I said earlier that there was this, uh, there was this exchange going on there in the temple. There was a, a selling and a buying. There were people coming, buying their sacrifices, and then there were people then uh, that were selling them. There were merchants there selling. And, and one of the things we want to see is this is, the, this is the court of the Gentiles. If you remember back to Sunday school when you had the little pictures of the temple, right? The court of the Gentiles was that outer court. That's where this, all this buying and selling went on. These are Gentiles. They're selling uh, to Jews the things they're going to use in their sacrifice. It was a corrupt system. So we see unclean people selling to clean people the sacrifice for which needed to be cleaned. But Jesus not only stops there by, by driving them out. I mean, just imagine in all of the busyness and all of the craziness, someone coming in and driving out all the buyers and sellers. And then Jesus doesn't stop there, but he begins to throw over tables. I mean, this is a violent scene, is it not? If you've ever seen someone throw over a table, that, that'll wake you up, won't it? Right? It's a shocking scene. As Jesus goes in and he begins to, 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 to over, then he knock over the tables. He starts throwing chairs around. Jesus is demonstrating God's wrath here in the temple. But why? But why? What was the big deal? Well, one of the things implied, but it's not made explicit by Mark, is the why. It's implied, but not made explicit. It's made explicit in this way, though. Look with me in verse 17. Look at what Jesus says there at the end of verse 17. But you have made it, that is the the temple, God's house, a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Jesus here is, is sort of pressing on what the problem was. What was happening in that selling and buying process was basically what happens when, you know, hurricanes come and gas stations jack up prices to $10 a gallon, right? Exorbitant prices in the midst of, of great need, right? That, you know, and really what we see here is crime and abuse and corruption. We see what is happening is they are ripping off God's people for profit. But not just a mere profit. Like, you know, profit's not wrong. It's not wrong to, you know, have a business and make money. But that's not what they were doing. <laughs> they were making lots and lots of money off of God's people. Off of poor but not only that, remember the temple tax. One of the things they had to do is exchange their Roman money, which was kind of only, you know, it was accepted everywhere. It's kind of like Visa, right? Accepted worldwide, uh, but not at the temple, right? So their, their, their Gentile money, their Roman money that they had to have to do business outside of the temple, they couldn't use inside of the temple. And so they had to exchange it for temple money, right? Remember Jesus... Uh, here in a little bit, he's gonna in a couple weeks we're gonna consider Jesus's story. Remember when uh, the Pharisees come and, and uh, he talks about the coin, and, and 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 Jesus asked the Pharisees whose inscription is on the coin, and he says they say Caesar's is on it, right? And he says give to God the things that are God, and give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, right? The, they did not want coinage in the temple 
that had Caesar's image on it. That was idolatry. And so they exchanged that. But here's the deal. The exchange rate was tantamount to robbery, right? Give me your dollar and I will give you 10 cents back, right? It was, it was, it was an exorbitant exchange rate. And so what we see is they were defrauding God's people. They were literally robbing them. They were thieves. And it is this that Jesus then is attacking. It is this activity that Jesus is coming in and getting upset about. It is something that Jesus has seen for 30 years. It is something that Jesus has witnessed with his eyes. It's something that John tells us upset Jesus so bad that he did it at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. When Jesus began ministry, he went in there and got a whip out, started whipping people. And at the end of his ministry, he did the same. Why? Because this was preventing people from coming to God. What was happening here was an appearance of fruitfulness, but rather lack the power of God. One thing we want to remember is why the temple? What was the temple for? What was the purpose of the temple? The temple was, was meant to be a place for the nations. We often have this sort of individualistic view of Israel, as if Israel was the end. No, it was the means to the ends. Israel, the nation of Israel, was the means to the ends of God's glory to the nations. That's what it was for. It wasn't merely to keep the nations out, but to display God's glory in the middle of the nations. To see what was truly holy and pure in the midst of impure things. And so what they had in, in fact done is turn the temple into the exact opposite. They had turned the temple into worldliness rather than the temple being what it was meant to be. Now, we see Jesus here driving away these individuals, turning over tables, and, and we're told by Mark that he wouldn't allow anything to go through the temple. I mean, he shuts the whole show down uh, by his activity. Shuts it down. Says no more. Does that mean that they weren't supposed to be doing what they were doing? No, 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 no. We don't want to see that at all. We want to see that these people were preventing others from God. We want to see that these people were the very people who were supposed to be bringing others to Jesus, or to God, excuse me, but were the ones who were keeping them. So what does this teach us about Jesus? What do we learn about Christ in this passage? We see that Jesus has authority to judge. We see that Christ has the authority to do these things. Jesus comes with the mindset that this is my job, that this is my responsibility. Jesus is claiming something about himself here, isn't he? That he is a judge. Now, we like to talk about God and his love. There's nothing wrong with that. God is love. But God is also wrath. God is also just in his judgment of sin. And we cannot understand love of God well, if we don't have a firm understanding of God's just judgment of sin. When we understand what Jesus is doing here in judging these rebellious sinners, we understand more about our own sin. I know it's easy to read the Bible 
kind of look at it and say, those idiots. I mean, I wouldn't have been doing that. I mean, everyone knows that's wrong. We kind of we go to the Bible and we read it like we're the Pharisee. You are the Pharisee. The point of the story is you are the one whom Jesus is driving out. You would have been doing the same activity because you are a sinner in need of a Savior. What we see here then is a clear warning. A clear warning, if you're not a Christian, that God is a God who judges sin. God does not allow sin to perpetuate into eternity. He deals with it. And we might, as as people, kind of think God's for us because we have a lot of good things going for us. I was speaking with someone this week who's in unrepentant sin. And they looked at me and said, Oh, but God is blessing my life. Oh, I'm healthy. Um, my kids are doing well. I've got money. He had been blessed by God, and that blessing was his hindrance to his confession of sin. Brothers and sisters, do not allow God's blessings to deceive you into thinking that everything is okay with God. Just because your life's going good, things seem like, yeah, does not mean that things are going well with your relationship with God. If you were to go that day and interview these people and say, hey, how is your relationship with God? They would have said, it is good. Things are well. Yeah, we like the Romans out of here, but you know what? Other than that, hey, they let us hang out here. They didn't kill us. It seems to be going well. And it was in the midst of that they were deceived. They had rather turned God's house into a place of profit and extortion. And it just warns us as Christians that God will judge our sin. That we must willingly and freely confess our sins. I just wonder, what are some specific areas in your life you need to repent today? I just pray that maybe you just pray this week, maybe pray this afternoon, God, reveal maybe where you are uh, sort of depending on those green leaves in your life. And things really seem good. But as you dig past the leaves, you see there's no fruit. Just pray, God, expose that in my life that I can freely confess it. Perhaps you're here this morning, you look good. Look like you got it all together. But you're harboring unrepentant sin in your life. You're harboring in your heart. You keep it close. You don't let it out so people can see it. But you keep it. Perhaps there's ways you need to confess that this week. Brothers and sisters, I just pray that you would allow this warning, this frightful scene, Jesus flipping stuff over and screaming and shouting and and looking like a lunatic as a warning to wake up from your sin and to freely confess that to Christ. We must fear God. (laughs) The Pharisees here wrongly fear God. They fear God out of some sort of 
sinful motive to kill Jesus. What they fear is that Jesus is going to be cooler than them. But the Bible repeatedly exhorts Christians to a fear of God. Not a, not a, I'm a, he's going to beat me. But a reverent fear of God. Where we take sin seriously and we take God seriously. We don't want to just take sin seriously. We do want to do that. But we also want to take God seriously. And the Bible says that God is a judge. We want to take that pretty seriously. And submit to this judge. And know that through Christ, God brings salvation. Perhaps one thing you could do this week, if you have children in your home, or perhaps grandchildren, teach them how to fear God. Teach them how to fear God in their life. Teach them what it means to be reverent towards God. Maybe they're not Christian. Maybe they don't understand. But just teach them that God is a God who judges. That God will destroy sinners. As David says, who can stand in the presence of God? Who can ascend his holy hill? Not anyone. Tell them that. And then tell them about what Jesus has done to satisfy God's wrath towards sin. Teach them these things. Show them that gracious gift. Well, we've considered then Jesus' authority to judge. Kind of tease that out a bit. Let's think now about our responsibility then to bear fruit. The thrust of this passage is really to push you and I to expose us. Remember, who is Mark writing this letter to? Christians. This is written to Christians. So this isn't new information for his first readers. The Christians in Rome whom Mark is writing to and to us today are Christians who were first and foremost being persecuted. They were Christians who were facing persecution for their faith in Christ. And Mark is writing them to remind them of who Jesus is. That he is the son of God. That he has authority. All of that is meant to reassure us as readers. But if Mark is writing this to Christians, and the point isn't merely to communicate historical truth, I don't think that's what Mark is doing here. He's not just writing down a sort of a biography of Jesus. No, he's writing this for a particular purpose and reason. He's writing this to inform Christians how to live their lives and warn us about the responsibility to bear fruit in our own lives. What we see then in the barren tree is a barren temple. A, a, a religiosity, a spiritual things. How often things that are meant for good, we can turn them into means for vainglory. What is a billion dollar business in America? Christian merchandising. Billion dollar industry. Selling trinkets and toys to Christian adults. Turning those things into profit and gain. How do we do the same? How are we tempted to look at external things like they were? That on the appearance it looked good, it looked leafy, it looked green, it looked healthy, it looked like everything was good. But when you got down in, it looked, well, it was rather dead. Whereas there in our own hearts and lives areas where we need exposure. Brothers and sisters, that is why God has put us in a community 
of other Christians. Not so that we can be these rough, hard-handed, calloused fruit inspectors, but so that we can lovingly and graciously expose fruitlessness. If you're a Christian today and you're not regularly here, not a member of a local church, that is recipe for disaster. Why? Because you will be deceived to think that everything is good when you have no one in your life kind of exposing your fruitlessness. Part of a local church is the accountability to say, look, I don't see you growing. What's going on? How can I help you grow? How can I help you do that? Paul tells us in Ephesians that he, he gave the church pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, to equip, to, to help them bear fruit in their lives. God also gave us his spirit to help bear fruit in our lives. And I think it's so funny as Christians that we memorize the fruits of the spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we know all those, right? But we never consider the fact that every one of those is meant to be lived in community. Every one of those has to have another person in order for them to work. Love. I mean, you can self-love all you want. But at the end of the day, the command isn't to love yourself. It is to love others. <laughs> okay? Joy. Now, joy can be sort of individualistic, perhaps. But the, but the point of it isn't that you just have joy in and of yourself, but that you experience joy among others, right? That's why Paul says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Again, an implication is you kind of have people around you to do that. Uh, patience. I mean, you can be a patient with yourself, but that doesn't go very far. Patience implies that there are people that you need to be patient with, people that get on your nerves, people that you need to grow with. And God puts us in a community with messy people, with other sinners who are not got it all together, who are really messy and problematic and frustrating so that we can become patient. You can't. If everything is going good in your life, you're not growing in patience. I can guarantee you that right now. It's only when you're in a community with other Christians. And so implied in this passage is the need for us to be with other Christians. This is why we have the local church to hold each other accountable, to love one another, to pursue those things, to cultivate that in our life. I just wonder, what what are some areas you need to grow in as a Christian? You know, ask. Go to a trusted brother or sister and ask them, um... You know, do you see me as a loving person? Oh, yeah. I mean, you could probably grow in that. All right, cool. I want to grow in that. Help me grow in that. You know, we, 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 we cower as Christians to be confronted in our weaknesses. We run from our weaknesses rather than running to them and saying, how can God fix them? So, for example, if you're not very loving, which is possible, right? I mean, we're all sinners, right? We can be unloving. It's okay. Because we're sinners. But the question is, are you willing to admit that you're not loving? And then willing to say, brother, sister, help me grow in love. Maybe for you it's not love. Perhaps, perhaps for you it's peace. Maybe you need to grow in peace. Cultivate the fruit of peace in your life. Rather than being at war with those around you, maybe perhaps seek reconciliation with your enemies. 
as Jesus exhorts us in the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps for you, you need to cultivate the fruit of hospitality. Well, one really practical way you can do that right now is invite people to lunch today. Someone maybe perhaps you don't even know. Say, hey, you want to go grab lunch? Let's, let's go to lunch. Our families, let's go to lunch. Let's, let's do that. Let's go to dinner this week. Come over to my house. Have a meal. Brothers, sisters, let me, let me just sort of dig in on that right there. We must transcend our culture here in our northeastern area the lack of hospitality. Probably not a sermon I need to preach to folks from the south. But up here, we are very go home, shut off, see you next week kind of attitude. Brothers and sisters, we need to live life together. It begins by willing to be messed up, <laughs> admit that we're messed up, admit that others are messed up, admit that people aren't perfect, people make mistakes, people, I'm going to get hurt, people are going to hurt my feelings, I'm going to hurt other people's feelings. Are we willing for all that up front? We've got to say, look, we've got to do that, we've got to know that. And then we've got to rest in God's goodness that this is meant to grow me, that this is meant for my spiritual good. Being a hospitable person isn't just being a good person, it's being a godly person. Growing godliness in this way. And for you, it may be other in another way. Spend getting time to get to know somebody. Get to know them beyond the sort of surface. Get to really know them. Get to really know what are their temptations, where are their struggles, where are their difficulties. Pray for them intentionally about those things. Read God's word with them. Encourage them. Show genuine concern for others. Don't just make the appearance that you care. Really care. Now, one last question we want to think about, um, and perhaps this time will be, our, our, our remaining time will be well suited. Does this passage mean that we cannot sell anything in church? Does this passage mean that it is wrong for us to sell a book or a t-shirt or any other thing in this building? Short? No. Why? Well, it depends. First, if the item is being sold for malicious profit, no. That's the principle here, right? That's being taught. Secondly, we have to understand this place, this room. Now, I know we like to call it a sanctuary, but in reality, it's not. It's a four-sided room with a floor and a ceiling, and it's only made holy by holy people being inside of it. Where is the temple of the Holy Spirit in the believer? It's in us. Not in this room. So this room is not holy apart from the people that are in it. So this week, if you were to come in this room, it wouldn't be very holy, right? And all the holy people there. And so this room is not the temple of God. This building is not God's house. And Protestant Christians, particularly Baptists, have always believed that historically. That's why they called their, their churches meeting houses. Not 
sanctuary. That word sanctuary is a Catholic term. So you Protestants that love calling this a sanctuary and don't like Catholicism, well, there you are. Um, uh, but that, no, really, Protestant Christians have always called their places meeting houses because it was where the church met, not where the church was. And so we want to see that it is not wrong if we were to have a bookstall where we perhaps sell Christian resources or other books for, to cover cost. It's not sinful. But the question is, is does the one question we want to ask is, does it take away from worship? Is it for profit maliciously? Is it to, is it to rip people off? If not, then there's nothing wrong with it. And so just to clarify that, I know that as Christians we have often, I think it's a Baptist thing, I guess, have struggled with that. Just a reminder. So as we see in this passage, Jesus here is acting with messianic authority to judge the nation of Israel as a warning to us that we need to see spiritual fruit in our lives. And that is only through the work of the Spirit in our lives. So if you're not a Christian, you cannot produce that. That is only through faith and repentance to the work of the Spirit that can be born. And as Christians, we want to see that lived out in our life. As way of application, I hope that you've seen that your responsibility as a Christian to grow spiritually, to not remain stagnant, but to bear fruit in your life. And I pray that these warnings would be heard. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we give you praise and glory. God, you are a gracious God and a good God that you would save sinners, that you would not destine us to wrath, but you have destined us to life, that you have destined your own son to death in our place. And we praise you and glory in your presence today. Father, I pray that you would bear fruit in us, that we would see greater fruit in the lives of your people here as you grow us in the faith. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.